Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about fragility. Um, I thought it might be a good place for us to start by talking about how we experience fragility on a personal level, how we experience it, how we think fragility um, is a personal experience for most people. We see fragility emerging interpersonally when people are passive-aggressive, or when they blow up. I think we see it when they gaslight other people. I see it when they refuse to apologize or take responsibility or accept responsibility for, you know, hurting other people or making mistakes or miscommunicating. I think we see fragility as a consequence of social violence, too. I think people internalize fragility because they've been broken a bunch of times by others. So ultimately, I think it's the end result of, you know, psychological and social violence. And so people become really unable to cope with minor stressors, you know, in their lives, whether that those stressors are about their race or their gender or interpersonal rejection that happens around affection or sex. I don't know. I, you say minor stressors, but I think there's so many stressors. They kind of like build up and create this pressure that you have to live under. I mean, I think there's a fragility about like being mortal in the first place and a fragility around the fact that you could die at any time and that you see things going wrong all the time, whether it's your air conditioning at your house breaking or you have a failed relationship or um, you see like political fail when the person you voted for <laughs> is not in office and you feel like the outcome is a disaster <laughs> um, as we do now. As some do now. Um, <laughs> there are all these different things um, instances in which we see things going wrong mm-hmm. Um and I think it creates an immense sense of fragility for people. They don't feel safe. And I feel like that closes closes them off yeah. to people. And it creates like a sense of insularity or like defensiveness, and bitterness. Alienation. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I think we see fragility happen, though, in times of crisis for sure. But I think we see it most acutely around things that are really should not be major stressors, like the air conditioning or, you know, whatever, you know, the end of a relationship when you're a teenager or, I mean, I just feel like the scripts that Americans especially have for failure are so minimal because the narratives that we tell about our own heroism are so huge that it becomes very difficult for people to accept any kind of limitations on their desires, even while they're living in a culture that doesn't allow them to access those desires. So I think you're right that it is like a constant oppression as in being pressed upon, you know, from all directions, from all these life stressors of just like staying alive and surviving. But, you know, just like we talked about in previous seasons about resilience and grit, 
You know, I think that resilience is overcoming fragility and moving from a place of self-esteem to real confidence. And confidence is the mastery of skills. So people who don't experience fragility to the degree where they're unhinged by minor things, including major presidential elections, have tremendous confidence because they've, they have mastered a ton of different skills that help them to respond to minor and major crises in their lives. And they have a kind of emotional fortitude. And sometimes they have other things too. They have class privilege, right? Where there's stability in their financial world, or they have, you know, emotional relationships that are varied and quite dense that are going to help them propel them through. It's not like, it's not like this is just an individual thing that happens inside of the body, but overcoming fragility takes the people who do that take very seriously their charge of, you know, living in that web of mutuality with others so that it's a, a mutual sort of aid situation. They see community in that way. And the ones who feel deeply fragile are the most alienated. So they're the people who do not have dense networks and they don't do vulnerability and they don't do intimacy and they don't practice care for themselves or others. And that's why they become so bitter and, you know, so lonely. And those sorts of pervasive feelings, I think, are what create the cracks and fissures in the self that lend themselves to that kind of fragile you know, ego. I think though people who have that, that confidence that allows them to navigate fragility, I mean, I think that impulse can also go kind of haywire where because of a sense of fragility, people, they seek power or mm. seek control yeah. in unproductive ways. Totally. Um, that manifests kind of on an institutional level, a societal level in a way that it favors your own sense of security over like a community Mm -hmm. that allows everyone to feel less fragile. I mean, I feel two ways about that. I feel like there's just really intense psychic trauma that happens disproportionately, obviously to women and people of color and queers, poor people um, that writes itself onto the body where fragility becomes, you know, an almost, you know, an autonomous nervous system response to that kind of perpetual pain. And then I also feel like there's a self-inflicted fragility that is a, that is hyper American. So I, I was thinking the other day at the gym, you know, there are people who are just there to exercise, you know, it's like, okay, I've got to move for 30 minutes. The doctor said, blah, blah, blah. And then there are these women who are punishing themselves, you know, that are that, and you can see the difference in the way that they move and take up space in the gym where they are inflicting pain upon themselves. They're punishing themselves for eating or for taking up space or for aging or, you know, for being more financially successful than their husbands or for not working or this, these, this huge range of behaviors that are part of the double bind, right? It doesn't matter if they work or don't work. They're going to, they're going to punish themselves either way. This sort of self-flagellation of self-inflicted pain. And I think that that kind of masochism is also an intrinsic part of fragility where people feel so unlovable and so insecure about themselves and their relation to others that they are the ones who are actually the jailers and they're the ones who are torturing themselves and they become their own executioner. And it's like this kind of psychic, you know, cutting that they're doing to themselves in ways that make them fundamentally not emotionally whole. But people like that also punish other people too. Definitely. Like they are like, why aren't you punishing yourself as much as I'm punishing myself? Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, the 
fat dieting and high heels. I mean, the starvation, becoming a weaker person in service of the the system of control that was built in the first place because we feel (laughs) fragile about ourselves um, as a species, but then making yourself weaker and then shaming other people for not doing the same thing. (laughs) But there's also (laughs) another dynamic there that the one that I find most repulsive, quite frankly, is the one where people self punish and then they want me to punish them also. Like, why can't our relationality be based on me actually socially punishing them? I loathe that dynamic. Like, it is a trigger for me. It makes me, I mean, rage to be asked to become the abuser for somebody because that is their relationship to their self. Um, I just, I cannot handle that. But it's a byproduct of that, of this kind of, you know, hyper-competitive, hyper-capitalistic, violence sort of culture where the only kind of relationality people know is pain. I just resent being asked to fulfill that kind of archetypal space, especially at work. (laughs) Like I hate it. I don't want to yell at you. I don't want to blame. I do not want to be critical. Don't force me to be your mean daddy. I don't want that. And I feel like that is a way of relating that is super common. It's part of this, you know, unwhole, unmerged, you know, rampantly out of control ego that cannot be checked by, you know, conscious self-reflection and the taking of responsibility. And I think that, you know, there are ways to overcome that interpersonally that include, you know, building confidence through the mastery of skills. And one of those skills is like regulating the self, you know, and taking responsibility for failure and understanding that all failures don't have to mean the termination of a relationship or the end of the thing that you can overcome failure, you know? And I also think that um, fragility can be overcome through radical intimacy, obviously, you know, where people allow themselves um, the possibility of pain as part of a larger project of self of uncovering those pieces that are fragile and, removing them or making them whole or suturing them or plastering them or, you know, whatever kind of metaphor that you want to use that helps reassemble the self as a different kind of mosaic, you know? It's interesting that you say that. I mean, the most of the critical dialogue about fragility is about white fragility and mm-hmm. male fragility. And those, yeah. are, those are two categories of people that resist the feeling of pain or, you know, at least cover it up in a very deliberate way or in the case of white fragility, displace pain onto other bodies mm-hmm. and other people. So I kind of think that reading is interesting because these centers of fragility are <laughs> stark because of like a lack of intimacy, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way that white people have organized their societies has like continued to alienate them in general. Yeah, totally. Especially in the United States. I wonder what your take is, you know, on, on these locuses of fragility. Well, I mean, first of all, so I've been writing about Malcolm X all day. (laughs) So Malcolm's on my mind 
And I think one of the things that he did rhetorically so well is that he exposed how white fragility should not inform black um, confidence or self-concept, and that there really needed to be new ways of understanding and interpolating blackness that did not rely on the white gaze or white power or the colonizer's influence. And that was a direct refutation of the kind of fragility that white people had, um, right, that, that was justified through Christianity as they were slaveholders and then on up through the centuries. And then also um, an understanding of the fragility of black people who are forced to respond to psychic terror um, that fragile white people have inflicted upon them for hundreds of years in the U.S. And so in terms of whiteness, I think that, you know, one kind of fragility is about the limits of narcissism and power and control, just like you were talking about for white people. But there's a very real fragility for people of color and queers and women. That's about terrorism. That's about an entire culture that's organized around the kinds of pleasure that people in power take at their own pain. And so there's a voyeurism, spectatorship of that violence that that becomes taboo and is part of the fragility. White racists know fundamentally on a level they are wrong and they're doing bad things. They just think that if they keep doing it, they'll get to a place where they can accept it. And some of them, I suppose, do. But for men, it's interesting because I just got back from Scandinavia and a, a guy stopped me on the street to, to ask me for coffee. And I declined and it was so interesting to me and I talked about this a little bit online that I declined and he didn't, he didn't call me any names and he didn't threaten to hit me and he didn't shout at me, didn't throw anything at me. You know, I was not afraid for my life or myself. Like he managed this really minor rejection totally well. And here I was in a culture where sort of the equality of the sexes has been part of their culture for much, much longer than the United States. And it was built into the kind of, you know, microscript you know, just asking me to coffee, that he could manage that minor rejection without a total threat to his entire being. And that is just straight not how it is here around sex or mating or money or social mobility or education or employment. All of those spaces where rejection ever becomes a specter of possibility, people just fall apart. Well, the United States and most of the like classic American narratives are narratives of success, you mm -hmm. know, and the way that people frame who they are and their identities are all around like what their successes are. When you ask someone like about themselves, they're not going to tell you <laughs> their problems or their failures. Like there's a an exterior person that you are and that you're allowed to be. That's generally very clean, mm -hmm. what uh, white, financially secure, yeah, heterosexual, and, yes. Christian, all of the stuff, all the components that don't fit within that. Um, pretty rigid framework or kept inside there to be hidden mm -hmm. right and not shared i mean sharing them is exactly the way to break through and create like a community that could possibly support support you actually <laughs> i mean i guess that's the thing that ties together the personal and the political because i think about you know, Trump's campaign slogan to make America great again, which I fundamentally think is an inverted acceptance of historical loss or lack, the loss of white male primacy, the loss of white privilege, the loss of, you know, a kind of prestige <laughs> 
that goes along with whiteness and masculinity. And I think that that resonates with white men, especially, but certainly white women too, because they are so unfulfilled and their entire identity is wrapped around their whiteness in ways that they can't even untangle or articulate as, you know, ideological closures or erasures or they're kind of meat hooks, you know, the way that white supremacy hooks people to their sense of identity, especially national identity. But at the end of the day, fragility is both a product and producer of structural violence, domestic violence, gun violence, you know, lynching culture, all of those spring from a lack of confidence in the self that manifests in state-sanctioned violence. And that seems to be a real problem to me. It's like, we, you know, obviously I do some um, work on sensible common-sense gun control, and I... I, the biggest predictor of people who are going to go shoot up a place are that they're white and they're men. And they've been, they've been accused or convicted of domestic violence in the past. So there's a sense at which violence becomes the only vector through which Americans can express their fragility. And so, of course, you're going to see people of more social power have disproportionate reactions to things where their violence is lar lar of larger scale. It's not the language of the dispossessed in America. It's the language of the most possessed. I spoke earlier about, I think, control being mm -hmm. kind of the knee-jerk reaction to fragility. That happens on a personal level. Domestic violence is obviously an example of that. And that it's institutionalized in this. There are a lot of layers to like, how people exercise control. Um, but I also think that violence as a form of control really speaks to how alienated we are as people because I think violence is a very like individual impulse and you don't exercise violence when you feel connected yeah. to people right you mm -hmm. exercise violence when you feel alone or afraid you know and so I mean just the fact that we have a society that fails to connect people in, that fails to promote intimacy or social cohesion at all and prioritizes individual advancement mm -hmm. and like uh, competition in that way the coping mechanism for becomes violent the, the I, you know the way to overcome fragility is clearly intimacy with other people and I just really don't spend time with people who can't do intimacy because they are fragile. And I think it's emotionally exhausting. And it's like full of micro and macro aggressions to deal with people who are so fundamentally insecure that they can't do trust. They can't do reciprocity. Mm -hmm. They can't be honest about their failures. Like red flags are people who just never stop talking or let others provide feedback in a conversation. That's a red flag for me that those folks cannot do intimacy People who never admit that they're wrong. People who feel like they're imposters all the time and have never settled into a, a coherent sense of self. And those are those folks, I mean, they just have a lot of personal work to do about getting right with themselves about who they are and the decisions that they've made and where they want to go and who they want to be and what kind of values that they hold. And for, for people whose values are inarticulate or unformed, 
that is also a red flag for me that they are likely to be really fragile. That's really hard for me. I just, there's a lot of emotional energy to put into people who are real fragile. They just bring a lot of chaos. Even if it's not violence, it's interpersonal chaos. And that's it. That's a lot of emotional labor to do, I think, for people. And it's very hard for me to bother building any kind of trust or closeness with folks who don't have a stable sense of self that way, who can overcome that fragility and overcome their ego to take responsibility as a full partner in any kind of relationality, whether it's personal or professional. I was also thinking about you talking about the election. And I think I speak for a lot of activists when I say it was really frustrating after the election to see so much white fragility (laughs) about Hillary Clinton's loss and to manage the emotional feelings of all of these people who mostly didn't do any work to register any voters. They didn't knock on any doors. They didn't really participate in the campaign. They don't participate in politics generally. Their like participation in politics is sharing a story on Facebook. And they have all take up all of this public sphere space with their white feelings about her loss. And it's not that I don't understand generational feminism and why there were baby boomer women who wanted Hillary to win. It's not like I didn't understand the pragmatics of her as a technocratic president and that being perhaps more suitable than Donald Trump. But at the same time, using just sucking all of the air out into this, what I found was appalling outpouring of just misplaced feelings was exhausting. And I would go to these political trainings for grassroots people. And I'm like, I'm not here to hear your feelings. You have to manage that. This was a predictable outcome. I'm sorry that you weren't paying attention enough to some of these signs to see it. You willed this thing into being and it, d- it didn't happen. It was, a, it was a wish thing. You wished it to be true, but it wasn't a political reality. And I am not here as your therapist to listen to your feelings. And that just spoke to me so much of the fragility of liberals, like as a political class of mostly white people that um, was very um, disappointing for me. It wasn't surprising because I write about the failures of white liberals all the time, but it was exhausting and, and disappointing. It's like you didn't do any of the work to make sure that she would win. You didn't do any of the work to build a culture where he would definitely lose. You're totally responsible for that. There's there's a tremendous amount of responsibility or if you want to call it blame, to go around, especially with white liberals, for what was done poorly in the election. So to see all of this like outrage, especially among well-to-do middle and upper-class white liberals, is just really uh, revolting to me and offensive, quite frankly, and speaks to a much larger political culture of fragility that the Democratic Party has always participated in. I mean, I guess I want to dive further into that. I mean, what work should they have done? I mean, anything is better than nothing. There, I mean, white liberals haven't done shit to build things. Like, Obama's big legacy was the Affordable Care Act, not because he didn't want to, perhaps. I mean, he was obviously stopped by a, an obstructionist Congress, which is sort of part and parcel of the nature of the thing, um, with him being a black dude, but... I mean, it's not like state Democratic parties have been building deep benches. It's not like they've had signature issues. They've been steamrolled for the last 10 years because they have no articulable values anymore. They're not creating any kind of persuasive messaging for the people or meeting the needs of their constituents even when they do control things. Like even now, you know, we're six months into the Trump presidency. Where is the Democratic Party? I haven't seen a single article 
really in the last six months where the Democratic Party as a party is articulating values to create contrast with Trump at all. They just don't, they've receded completely. And that's exactly what white liberals did during the election. They got excited about a girl president. And there's something to be excited about there, I guess. The symbolism alone, I suppose, is important. But at the end of the day, it's not like they were out feeding people who were hungry or getting shelter for people who were homeless or any of the things that knit together communities and move them forward in this way. So, of course, fear messaging was going to take hold. And that all of those fear messages, you know, whether it's the travel ban or the wall or the gay panic or whatever, is fundamentally about trying to make America feel fragile, which just exacerbates all of that interpersonal stuff that leads to violence. It's just so shameful. Yeah, I mean, I read the wall that way, you know, like, build the wall and we'll be safe. And this is what you, you this know. Is, well, people believe that. That's why they live in gated. They live in gated communities, and they it's true. You know, they surveil themselves, and they want walls and fences and cameras everywhere. But security is an illusion. <laughs> it's just not real. Only security is an understanding that that's a farce, and to reject the premise entirely that you have a right. You know, like that somehow security is an attainable thing all the time for all the people. That is not real. The only security that you can provide is what you can provide for yourself, which goes back to what you were saying about fragility leading back to death and the fact that we're all slowly dying, you know, every day. So, I mean, there's just, I think people who don't constantly live their lives in this anxious, neurotic, fearful state and who with privilege are doing work to overcome that kind of fear narrative and taking responsibility for the decisions that they're making every day to build their security through relationality, through trust and play and intimacy and, you know, closeness with others in their communities. And the people who are not are either experiencing it on the low end of power where they're being brutalized and victimized by privilege and power and violence um, and are trying to do the best that they can to survive that. And that that's a very real threat, not just, a, you know, an interiorized psychological projection of threat. I mean, this is what, writing about Malcolm today, I just think about this, slaveholders, I mean, they're just panicked that the slaves were going to burn down the plantation, right? And so every action was about how to psychologically manipulate slaves if they didn't burn down the thing. And so, you know, it just seems to me that the, that entire colonizer mindset is where fragility comes from in the West. It comes from knowing that it's wrong to hold people as chattel and to keep them poor and uneducated and withhold resources from them that the culture can provide. And it comes from, you know, an entire religious apparatus designed to justify that kind of, you know, violence. So I, you know, I think fragility for me is just so frustrating with white people and with men because, like, you have all the social power. <laughs> it's unreasonable for you to feel fragile. And yet the entirety of the apparatus of power for white people and for men, for straight people, is about, you know, the precarity. It can be taken away at any time. So, and that's how power works, is that it's omnipresent and absent all the time. So the most powerful people feel powerless. Because when you see Donald Trump do this move all the time, is that he? it's a witch hunt. People are coming after him, right? All of his language of fragility is all about the precarity of his power, despite the fact that, you know, he won the election and he's you know, at least arguably one of the most powerful men on earth. And yet he is, he is articulating his, his subjectivity as, you know, as a precarious kind of power. 
And that's it always works that way. It's omnipresent, it's always there, and it's always lacking and, and, and shifting away constantly. Unless you really want to combat fragility with, you know, that kind of social connectedness, it's just going to augment and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and worse and worse and worse and worse, and people are going to crumble and fall apart, and we've got Prozac Nation, and that's the whole thing. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.